0: Hello and welcome to Broad's You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host Sarah Gorski, and if you are a regular listener, you will notice that I am back after a month away. Yes, I took off November. I was juggling too much all at once, and. All of the stuff I had going on, I decided to press pause on the current mini-series on visionary broads, and instead, I took the month of November to replay for you a few of our previously aired broads. Newer listeners might not have heard them yet, and I figured it was worth bringing them back. And since it was November, for Americans, traditionally, that is the month of thankfulness. Also, embarrassingly, that's the month where we all once- upon a time praised that big asshole whose name rhymes with Mystifer Malumbus, I wanted to take that opportunity also to showcase a few of the incredible indigenous women we've talked about on the podcast. So if you decided to skip over November since they were rebroadcasts, I encourage you to think again and roll back and revisit them. I am of the personal opinion that the average American spends far too little time learning about the true history of the indigenous and tribal history of the lands we now live on. So take every opportunity you can to educate yourself on it. Anywho... Now that November is over, and we are somehow in mother bleeping December, it's time to roll up our sleeves and get back to finishing up our mini-series on the visionary broads. This mini-series is part of a larger series I've dubbed They Called Them Crazy, and we've been exploring the women in history who have borne the title of Crazy. Were they really crazy? or? were the dude writers of history calling them that out of convenience. It's been a super fascinating journey through history and the lives of these women. And these visionaries, in particular, were prominent religious figures who literally had visions of God or Jesus or the Virgin Mary or the angels, et etc., cetera, et cetera. these biblical figures coming to visit them and giving them messages. And sometimes it was wisdom about how the world works, that was Hildegard von Bingen. Sometimes it was instructions on how to help France win the Hundred Year War against England, that was Joan of Arc. And sometimes it was just comfort or instructions on how to pray more deeply, but the fact that they were, quote, visited, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes around visited, the fact that they were visited brought them status and recognition in society at a time when women rarely achieved anything that was noted in the histories. And now we arrive at today's broad. Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie was born in England around 1373 AD. So this is deep into the Middle Ages. This is about the time that Chaucer wrote Canterbury Tales, for you English lit nerds that are listening. And at this time Specifically, it was apparently illegal for women to preach. Not just frowned upon, illegal. And some of the other visionaries talked about it, like in their time it was frowned upon for women to do so, but in my research there wasn't specific legislation laid out about it. So of course I am wondering as I read this, why in Marjorie's time was it literally illegal? And let me tell you folks, the research did not disappoint me, and it is definitely worth giving you a little brief overview of what the hell is going on in England, and specifically in the English church at the time when Marjorie lived, in the 1300s in the and 1400s. So as a reference point, I'm going to start with the Protestant Reformation. That was heavily influenced by Martin Luther's writings, and it was put into motion or action rather by King Henry VIII who really didn't like that the Catholic Church didn't allow him to divorce his wife. And this Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, officially kicks off in the 16th century, which is around 1517 is when it kind of gets rolling. So we're before that. We're in in the late 1300s, early 1400s. So the rumblings of dissatisfaction with the Catholic Church in England didn't start with the Protestant Reformation. They actually go back... Much further than that. And in Marjorie's time, these rumblings were known as lollardy or lollardism or the lollard movement. Super weird word, right? <laughs> I, I looked it up and uh, because I was like, where, where does that come from? Is it related to lollapalooza? Who knows? I looked it up and it's generally thought to be derived from an old Dutch word meaning mumbler or mutterer. And its origin seems to have been with this dude named John Wycliffe. He was a priest and a teacher at Oxford, and amongst many other things he believed, he believed that the Bible should be translated into the common tongue of the English people. It usually was only available in like Latin, which only the smallest amount of people could read, right? So John Wycliffe He actually translates the Bible himself, and suddenly he makes it accessible to a huge amount of people who never before had access to it. I mean, most people in this time period couldn't even read, much less read Latin, right? So this translation to English was a huge deal. Very generally speaking, in all of his teachings and preachings, Wycliffe was calling out a lot of corruption in the Catholic Church. And eventually, he's actually kicked out of the church because his beliefs were very extreme. For instance, he believed that uh, the, the requirement of baptism wasn't necessary for salvation. He also questioned the legitimacy of the papacy, the, pa- the pope, and all that leadership. And he also believed that confession was unnecessary, since priests weren't the ones that could actually restore salvation to the sinners. So he was hugely controversial in the church at this time period. And his followers became known as the Lollards. And they were running around repeating all of his beliefs, which in the eyes of the Catholic Church were basically straight up heresy. So there's the context like that. I I read through all that and tried to make some sense of it. And it made total sense to me after reading that, that England would have laws about who could and couldn't preach in this time period. Right. But anyway, let's get back to Marjorie's story. So Marjorie, was born in 1373 in Bishop's Lynn, which today is called King's Lynn, in Norfolk, England. And her family was one of the most prosperous and influential families in the whole town. Her daddy, John Burnham, was a merchant and he was mayor of Lynn five times. He must have been very popular. Uh, or at least very rich. <laughs> he also served as an alderman, a city councillor, a member of parliament, coroner even, justice of the peace, and Chamberlain. It sounds like he made his way through all, kind of, all of the official city positions. Um, we don't know very much about Marjorie's young life. Uh, But we do know that she most likely didn't know how to read or write. All of her surviving works were dictated and written down by other people. Um, And so her formal education was minimal, if anything, which was common at that time, obviously. She also took after her family, and she tried starting several small businesses. She started a brewery and a grain mill. Uh, Wikipedia says both of those were very common businesses for women to get into in that time period. Um, but Marjorie didn't seem to have much of a knack for it as those both of those businesses ended up being a little bit short-lived. We also know that at about 20 years old, Marjorie marries another fellow local merchant named John Kemp. And apparently he came from a lesser state social status than Marjorie and lesser wealth Uh, and Marjorie expressed at some point that she felt that she was above such a marriage and in her book she explicitly says that she told her husband they should never have married because she came from worthy kindred. (laughs) Ouch. Nevertheless, the two do marry and eventually she bears him 14 children. 14 children. I'll never stop being astounded by numbers like that in these stories. Um, if you're scratching your head a little bit as the number at the numbers here, I kind of like skip from 20 years old to 14 children, you're not wrong to wonder because Marjorie's notable life events don't actually begin until she's on the the tail end of these childbearing years of hers at around 40 years old. It's not actually that weird. You know, if if you recall, Hildegard didn't start writing until around that time period either, when she was kind of finally free out from under the thumb of the monks. Um, But Hildegard and all the other visionaries that we've talked about so far in this series, unlike Marjorie, those other women were not married with children. They were celibate nuns. Hmm... I'm sure there's no correlation between those facts and the fact that Marjorie was never canonized by the church like the other women, right? (laughs) I'm digressing. We'll get back to Marjorie. It turns out all we really know about Marjorie is found in her seminal and only publication, which is known as The Book, or as history has called it, The Book of Marjorie Kemp. And believe it or not, This book is actually the very first recorded autobiography in the English language. How about that? And get this, Marjorie's story was more or less lost to time entirely until 1934. And the story of the book's survival is kind of crazy in itself, so I'm going to tell you that story too. In 1934... A Colonel W. Butler Bowden Bowden, uh, found it in his cupboard. I'm going to quote this directly from Sarah Biggs, who is the British Library's medieval team uh, employee. She says, quote, the story goes that when Colonel W. Butler Bowden was looking for a ping pong bat, In a cupboard at his family home near Chesterfield in the early 1930s, he came across a pile of old books. Frustrated at the disorder, he threatened to put the whole lot on the bonfire the next day so that bats and balls would be easier to find in the future. Luckily, a friend advised him to have the books checked by an expert. And shortly afterwards, Hope Emily Allen identified one as the Book of Marjorie camp. It is a remarkable record of the religious life of a woman during the tumultuous 14th and 15th centuries, end quote. Now, prior to this, people, we didn't know Marjorie existed. There, there was like scattered pieces of the book uh, that that had been printed in the 16th century, but it was just pieces. It wasn't the full manuscript. They didn't have the full story. And so this discovery was simply astounding. Isn't that a crazy story? Like someone, I'm like imagining that somebody didn't clean out a cu- this cupboard in this house for 500 years. That's insane. <laughs> it's probably not that dramatic. I probably got moved around and stuff, but I still think that's pretty funny. So anyway, I keep hearing you asking, what's the deal with the book of Marjorie Kemp? So, this book was supposed to have been written around 1430, and the whole thing was dictated by Marjorie to what appears to be four different scribes uh, throughout the time she was writing it. Uh, And in the book, she is talking entirely in third person. She always refers to herself as this creature, which is really interesting. Um, there's some like scholars go back and forth as to why, but most of them think that it's it's a, a sign of piety and humble unworthiness with the honor that was bestowed on her with her visions. Um, that seems to be kind of the, the, the most common belief about why. So the whole book is an accounting of her life, and it begins, the book begins, with the birth of her first child, after which she became ill, and she believed herself to be surrounded by devils, quote, she tore at her skin and bit her hand so hard she retained the marks for the rest of her life she pitilessly tore the skin on her body near her heart with her nails. And she would have done something worse, except that she was tied up and forcibly restrained. And by her own words again, quote, she went out of her mind and was amazingly disturbed and tormented with spirits for half a year. Devils opening their mouths, All alight with burning flames of fire, as if they would have swallowed her in, sometimes pawing at her, sometimes threatening her, sometimes pulling her and hauling her about both night and day. Through her trials and torments, Marjorie said that she had forsaken her faith and denied god in these like moments of kind of insanity these bouts of insanity however jesus christ appears to her in one of her visions as a man clad in a purple mantle sitting on her bed and he asks her why have you forsaken me and with this marjorie grows calm and she regains her reason She also apparently had visitations and conversations with Jesus, Mary, the Virgin Mary, God, uh, other religious figures. And she even had a vision at some point of being an active participant during the birth and crucifixion of Christ. And these visions all also uh, would affect her uh, physically. She, she like could hear sounds and smell strange smells. And all this is all very intense stuff, right which is also you know a common theme with these visionaries, but very intense. Uh, and particularly that note that kind of like suicidal flavor that you kind of get in there that she was kind of restrained or else she would have hurt herself. Um, And some historians and psychologists have actually kind of identified this particular sequence of her text as most likely to have been postpartum psychosis, which, you know, if that is true or at least or partially true, um, that would also make this work, her work, the first autobiographical documentation of serious mental illness. There really isn't any literature that kind of broaches this topic. This is kind of a, a first in that department. Um, in the book, Marjorie goes on from this kind of description of the, the beginning of things. She goes on to discuss her worldly struggles. She struggles with remaining devout. By um, She's tempted by sexual pleasures and by social jealousy and the failures of her businesses, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually, she decides to dedicate herself completely to the spiritual calling from this very first vision. This decision of hers to return to her devout life leads her, in the summer of 1413, to negotiate a chaste marriage with her husband. This, of course, being of importance to her spiritual purity, right? Most of the other nuns of the time period obviously never had sex. Um, Apparently, she had been begging for this arrangement for three years with her husband, and finally he offers a compromise that if she pays his debts and eats dinner with him, that they'd never have to bone again. Uh, It's a little funky because the chase negotiation in her book, it happens in chapter 15, but then in chapter 21, a little later, she kind of offhandedly mentions that she's pregnant again. Um, historians can't really tell if she got pregnant before or after the chaste marriage pact, or maybe there was a momentary lapse in judgment and they boned again. I, we probably will never know. I suppose we'll never know. <laughs> uh, in addition though, to regaining her sexual purity, she also really leans into the public display of. All of it, all the piety, all the devoutness. She would go to confession two or three times a day. She prayed early and often every day in church. She wore a hair shirt, which you might remember is that itchy, uncomfortable shirt worn by the medieval pious folks practicing aestheticism. Um, And she became known very widely for her constant weeping and begging Christ for mercy and forgiveness. She kind of did this like out loud, in the in public, in church, everywhere. And her people in her hometown apparently really disliked her quite a bit. Um, so in stark contrast to the other visionaries that we've covered, Marjorie actually never joined a religious order. She never became a nun. But she carried out this kind of public life of devotion and prayers and tears. Um, all of these things that she was doing, though, apparently were things that Christ had commanded her to do. And in the visions he said that he would quote, "Give her victory over her enemies, give her the ability to answer all clerks, and that he will be with her and never forsake her and help her, and never be parted from her end quote.." In addition to kind of this public display, she also goes on a number of pilgrimages. She travels to the Holy Lands and all across Europe. Um, sometime around 1413, Marjorie visits this female mystic, an Anchorus. Um anchoress is a it's like a term for I think it's also a nun, but it's a term for a woman who is like kind of put herself in a cell to focus only on prayer and nothing else of the outside world. Um, So in my mind, that's also a nun, but (laughs) an anchors is a very specific term from this time period. So in 1413, she visits Julian of Norwich. And this is a woman that we have not talked about on the podcast yet, but she was another mystic of the time period. And her writings were a great influence to Marjorie. In addition to uh, a few of the other anchoresses of the time period, St. Bridget of Sweden and Mary of Oignies, I think you say it? Um, the All three of these women were, were very respected female mystics of the time period. Uh, and I have to imagine that these these other women must've been like lighthouses to Marjorie in this like really dark world. She was kind of treading through and she definitely it's evident She kind of sought their guidance and approval. And thank goodness when she went to visit Julian, Julian did give her the approval, um, that she was seeking. Um, and, and even though now Marjorie didn't, you know, I just said she didn't forego her worldly possessions like nuns do. Um, It was not a very easy path that she was walking with her, her devout life and pilgrimages. She was constantly harassed by the church and frequently she was threatened with hearsay and uh, any stamp of approval that she got from other influential religious people at the time went a really long way to protecting her against all of these allegations that people would, would be flinging at her. Um, in her book, Marjorie recounts a few different public interrogations while she's traveling, including when she was arrested by the mayor of Leicester, who accused her in Latin of being, quote, a cheap whore, a lying lollard." there's that word again, um, and he threatened her with prison. But clever, clever Marjorie, she was so, so clever, um, was able to insist on the right of the accusations to be made in English and then she was able to defend herself on the stand and was cleared of those particular charges only to be brought to trial again later by the abbot dean and the mayor and she was in prison for three weeks Um, and later on she would also face out specific hearsay charges. But the Archbishop eventually finds her innocent, and she is eventually cleared of kind of these most serious of serious accusations. Ultimately, the Book of Marjorie Kemp is a very smart expression of the tension in late medieval England between the institutional Catholic orthodoxy and those that were rising up against it, especially, of course, these law lords. And Marjorie was challenged many times by both the church and the civil authorities on her adherence to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Um, some of my sources also, some of them also talk about Marjorie as kind of a radical feminist of the time period. And while I am always eager to discover new proto-feminist figures from history, I think it might be a bit of a stretch to call her that. Uh, because her writings, as far, as far as I can tell from the research I've done here, aren't her writings, don't call for like radical equality between the sexes or something similar to that. Um, but she did, however, manage to gain a manner of independence from her husband, especially in the bedroom, which was definitely a huge accomplishment for a woman of that time period. Um, and she did, the fact that she went head to head with the institution of the church um, is certainly nothing. Just enough at, from a feminist perspective. Um, I guess this kind of brings us to the end of her story. Um, She doesn't burn for hearsay, as some of her Lollard compatriots would end up doing. Uh, She seems to have lived a pretty robust life, and is thought to have died sometime after 1438. But nobody really knows when. Obviously, that wasn't included in her book. Um, The church, as I said earlier, did not canonize her. Uh, After all, she was trying to overhaul them in a huge way with all of her writings and preachings. But she does have a commemoration day in the English church and in the American Episcopalian church, which kind of surprised me. I have no idea how that would have happened. Um, As usual, I glossed over Quite a bit of the finer details of her writings and her travels and pilgr- pilgrimages and all that. So I do encourage you listeners to read more about her yourselves if you're interested or better yet, uh, her book is has been translated, it's actually available and you can read it in her own words. Um, so you can read that kind of like intense exploration of, of um, postpartum psychosis. Um, but more more importantly, I think all the things that happened after that. Um I'd be remiss not to ponder once more the main idea of this whole series, which is craziness. And the question of, was Marjorie crazy? That recounting of her postpartum visions certainly continues to turn the heads of modern scholars today, even. But it's also really clear to me, through all these accounts of her life, that she was smart as hell. Not only negotiating her marriage bed, but her dealings with the church And in the courts. And so I wonder, you know, maybe her accounting of all this madness in her book could have been more than just an autobiographical account. Maybe she was establishing her legacy as a woman of God and forging her own legitimacy. Maybe she really knew what she was doing and she outsmarted the patriarchy with her book. Or maybe, possibly she's a little bit of both of those, crazy and smart. And this is pure speculation on my part, but I would probably guess that the truth is somewhere in between that spectrum. To learn more about Marjorie Kemp, see some art of her and some of her great quotes, you can head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, you can click on over to the About page and read more about me. i got a bio, photos, links to all my other cool stuff is there, and my social stuff. And also, you should follow Broad's You Should Know on social. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest abroad for future episodes, fill out the form on our website or email us at you should know at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those things really help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed this episode on Marjorie Kemp, you should check out some of our other visionary broads that we mentioned this episode, including Joan of Arc, Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, and Hildegard von Bingen. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Sky, with original music by Darren Callahan.